The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the fourth chapter and the 29th verse. The 29th verse in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Continuing our study of this particular chapter and this series of injunctions, which the Apostle is here addressing to these Ephesian Christians, we come to this particular injunction, this fourth of these particular injunctions that uh, he puts here before them. Now, we must remember, as I've been indicating Sunday by Sunday, that the Apostle here is but illustrating the great principle which he has laid down. And the principle is, of course, that now, having been regenerated, being born again, they must put off concerning the former conversation the old men, which was corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and being renewed in the spirit of their minds, they must put on this new man that is created after God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's the principle that they must not only realize in their minds, but they must put into practice in the whole of their life and conversation this radical change that has taken place in them. That obviously, therefore, everything that was true of them before is to be entirely put away and forsaken, and they're to put on this new man that is already in them, that he may be evident and obvious to all with whom they come in contact. But the thing is that the apostle uh, was not content merely with leaving it as a general principle. Wise teacher that he was, he knew the absolute necessity for illustrating it in particular. And we are now engaged in following him as he gives us these particular injunctions. Well, now here he comes this morning to this question of our conversation, our speech one to the other, our communication with one another in this particular form. Now, we must have noticed, surely, that in these particular injunctions, the apostle seems to bear in his mind most of the time this whole importance of speech. We remember that his very first injunction was, wherefore put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. Now, that's a question of speech. Well, here he is, I say, uh, once more uh, dealing with it. And again we shall find in verse 31 that he comes back to it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And again he'll take it up in chapter 5 in verse 4, uh, where he says, indeed in verse 3, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it be not once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor 
foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Now, I, I remind you of this for this reason, that obviously in the opinion and estimate of the apostle, this whole question of speech is a very vital one and uh, of necessity should receive great prominence as we are dealing with and considering the application of the truth which we believe to the details of our lives. Now, this is not surprising. Because, as uh, we've already reminded one another in considering that question of lying, after all, speech is the distinguishing and differentiating factor in man's life. When you come to compare and contrast men and the animal, there are many differences, but this is probably the most prominent and the most important. The thing that makes man men is this gift of speech and of expression. It's here we see perhaps the image of God in which man was originally created coming out most clearly. This ability to express oneself. Man can think and reason and look at himself objectively and consider himself. The animal can't do that, but this goes even further. Man can speak, he can express it, he can put it into words and into language. It is in many ways man's greatest gift of all. And because it is his greatest gift, it is not surprising that it is the thing which is most misused. That is, is it not a law in the spiritual realm? The devil obviously centers his attack upon that which is most precious in men. And that is the devastating thing about sin, that what it destroys first is always that which is best in us. It is the higher centers that always are first affected by sin in any shape or form. And so, it's not surprising that considerable attention is thus paid to this whole question of speech, as it is so expressive of the very essence of men's being and personality. And uh, you remember that uh, third chapter of the Epistle of James, uh, which we read just now, how James makes exactly the same point. Speech, the tongue to men, are comparable to the rudder to the ship, the bit, the bridle that you put into the horse's mouth. Oh, it's a very little thing, but what an important thing it is. It changes the course of that great Atlantic liner. It's the thing that keeps within bounds and control that horse with all his vigor and his power. Now, says James, You've got to realize as Christians, therefore, the vital importance of guarding the tongue and the lips. What havoc he says is wrought by misuse of the tongue. It's a very world of iniquity. It's something that can kindle a flame and a fire that is destructive. Well, this is just the scriptural way of reminding us that in our life lived in this world, Surely there is nothing which is of greater importance than the power of speech. Because, after all, we express what we really are by what we say. You remember the words of our Lord himself. He surely has put this once and forever in these words. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So that as you and I speak, we are really expressing what's in our heart. We express ourselves unless we give ourselves away by our speech. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaketh. Our Lord goes on to say this, A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Do we realize, my friends, the importance of speech? We talk so freely, so glibly, so loosely, and yet, says our Lord, by thy words, Thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Amen, he says, in the day of judgment shall give an account of every idle word that he hath spoken. Now, what that really means, of course, is this. That it is when we're off guard, as it were, we really express what we are. You see, morality can put a certain control upon us. But you rarely discover the weakness of the moral man in his unguarded moments. When suddenly something happens to him and he expresses himself, then he rarely shows what he is. And that is one of the ways, again, of differentiating between the merely moral man and the Christian man. The Christian man is not a man who is always repressing himself. No, there's something different at the center. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. It's what slips out that rarely tells us the truth about one another. Very well. Well, now then, it's not surprising that the Apostle pays this great attention to this question of speech. And the point, of course, that he's making here is this. You Ephesians, he says, you were once pagans, and uh, you had the typical pagan kind of conversation and of speech. But now, he says, you're new men. You put off the old men, you put on the new men. And there's no respect in which you can show this so plainly and clearly as in your conversation. In the kind of thing you talk about, the way you speak, and all these things. Very well. Now, that's what he's saying. And let us notice once more that he adopts the same formula which he has adopted in all the other cases. First of all, negative injunction, then positive injunction, and thirdly, explanation. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. There's the negative. Well, what are you to do? Well, that which is good, speak that which is good to the use of edifying. That's the positive. But why should you do this? What's the reason? Ah, the reason is that it may minister grace unto the hearer. Very well, let's adopt the apostle's own classification. We can't improve upon it. The negative injunction. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. I rather like his terms here. I like his graphic way of putting it. We shall see that he obviously had a very definite reason for putting it in that particular manner. Now, what he means is, I say, that we should be altogether and entirely different. 
in this matter of speech from the non-Christian. Very well, then, that leads us to an analysis of what is it that characterizes the speech, the conversation of the unregenerate and the godless. And they're suggested by the very terms used by the apostle. And we find them elaborated elsewhere in the scripture. The first characteristic of the speech of the ungodly always is excess. Lack of control. The speech of the ungodly is excessive. The ungodly people talk too much. They talk without thinking. They're always talking. It's you, you, you travel in a bus or a train, you sit in a room, and you'll find that this, there's this constant chattering that's characteristic always of the ungodly. How do you realize that? The Christian people don't talk as much as non-Christian people. Everything about the life of the ungodly is characterized by excess. We've seen it already. We shall see it again. I don't stay with that, therefore. Then the other characteristic, of course, about their conversation, and the thing that really makes it what it is, is that once more, self is just an expression of self. The life of the unregenerate is always a selfish and a self-centered life. And it comes out very obviously in this matter of conversation and speech. It's an opportunity for self-display, of course. Nothing gives a more wonderful opportunity for a man to display himself than speech or conversation. That's why they all, you see, generally talk at the same time. They're all so anxious to display themselves. And they can't wait for the other to finish. They want to get their word in. It's all with this desire of being interesting and entertaining and being admired and people saying how wonderful, so they all want to hold the floor. They all are craving, as we've seen in the other illustrations, for self and for self-expression and to obtain something for the self. And so in conversation they're constantly trying to get this opportunity for self-expression. You analyze speech and conversation with this in your mind and you'll find it's most interesting. As I say, the excess, the failure to speak with... Uh, in turn, and cutting in on one another, getting you a word in. And it's nothing but a sheer manifestation of self and selfishness, self-importance, the desire for admiration and for praise. That's the characteristic of the conversation of the ungodly. And then we must go on. The apostle deals with something that surely has a, a new urgency, alas, in the days in which we live, the lack of delicacy. Corrupt, worthless, ugly, unbecoming. That which tends to corrupt, that which is itself corrupt, rotten, foul. These are alternative translations of this word. Of course, uh, we've got polite terms for all these. Pickles we speak of. Adding a little spice to the conversation. Perhaps not using wrong terms, but uh, suggesting them. Suggestiveness. Vulgarity. Uncleanness. Coarseness. 
that which is obscene. Now, that is always the characteristic of the life as regards conversation of pagan society, even at its best. I wonder whether we've realized this as we should. I say even at its best. It's always seemed to me to be an appalling thing and perhaps one of the greatest manifestations of the fall and of sin and of the polluting effect of sin. But even men belonging to learned professions and societies, when they meet together at their parties, always spend some of their time in just what they call telling stories to one another. Repeating stories, collecting them, taking the trouble to remember them. Why do they do it? Well, of course, it's still the same thing. They know that they'll be admired for it. They'll be the center of attraction. Everybody will be looking while they're telling the story. And the more daring, the more wonderful. Able men, intelligent men, men high in their professions, they literally spend their time in doing that kind of thing. But nothing to do with ability at all. It's just this coarseness that sin introduces into life and into the heart. And this sort of thing is considered clever. Entertaining. Have you heard this, they say? And everybody listens, it's going to be wonderful. Men of intelligence. Yes, and men of integrity. That they should be capable, I say, of spending their time in such a way. What an awful manifestation of the polluting effect of sin. Now, I mustn't take time, but I could very easily digress at this point. To call your attention to the obvious tendency, alas, to an increase in this kind of thing in the life of this country and all other countries at the present time. Haven't you noticed a coarseness and a looseness creeping into conversation? People using terms in public, talking about things in public that no one would have dreamt of doing 40 years ago. Haven't you noticed it coming into the writing, articles, not only in newspapers, in journals? Isn't it happening in literature almost in general? This curious tendency to be daring, indeed it's no longer daring, it's become so customary that it is no longer daring and shocking. I am appalled. Again, I'm referring even to articles in journals of repute. One cannot but notice this curious, sad declension that is so evidently taking place. And I don't stay to mention the way in which the world, the godless world, turns into a joke and regards as amusing that which is really tragic. Why should a married man's unfaithfulness to his wife be regarded as funny? Why should there be constant jokes about a thing like that? There's nothing that causes greater unhappiness to men, women, and children, than just this very thing. And yet it's regarded as really very funny. Some insinuating, ins suggestive joke about a man even tying or even thinking of playing with such an act of infidelity. 
The world laughs and jokes about it. That is the corrupt communication, the corrupt conversation that comes out of the mouth of the unregenerate. I have nothing to do with it, says the apostle, and especially for this reason, because of the harm it does, I say. It's corrupt in itself and it corrupts others. And this, this was the thing that was uppermost in the apostle's mind here, as it is in all these separate injunctions. He wants them to see that they must be considering others. So he says, don't let any corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Somebody else may hear it and it may do harm to him. What do these words do? Well, James has already reminded us, they inflame with a passion of hell. Many a man has gone wrong in life through just listening to unworthy conversation. This kind of conversation stimulates. It inflames, it arouses everything which is unworthy. Yes, says this same apostle in writing to the Corinthians, evil communications corrupt good manners. And they do. Now then, says the apostle, for the sake of others, let none of this Come out of your mouth. Now I want to emphasize that before I leave this negative. What he's really saying is, to put it quite simply and bluntly, stop doing that sort of thing. But I must uh, refer uh, for a second to the particular way in which he puts it. You notice he says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. In other words, if it even enters your mind, if you're beginning to form your lips and your tongue, stop. If it's even arrived in your mouth, don't let it come out. Crucify it, kill it, murder it, stop it. If you yourself are guilty of evil thoughts, if the devil suggests them to you and you can't stop him, he'll hurl them at you, he'll, like these fiery darts of his, he'll insinuate them into your very minds, his subtle innuendos. Well, if they come there, says the apostle, what I'm telling you is this, never let them proceed out of your mouth. Let them die upon your lips for the sake of others. Very well, there is his negative injunction. We must hurry on to the positive. The positive is this. Let no such thing proceed out of your mouth. Well, what should proceed out of your mouth? He says, that which is good to the use of edifying. Oh, I must again emphasize this principle. You know, the central glory I sometimes think of this Christian faith and Christian life is just this, that it's never merely negative. This isn't morality. This is Christianity. Ah, yes, your moral man, he can put the curbs on and put the brakes on and he can not be guilty of certain things, but he stops at that. No, no, says Paul, turn to the positive. The gospel of Christ is a life, a new life. And it's full of positive activity and of exertion. And this is always the Christian way. Well, now then, what does he say? Well, he says that which is good to the use of edifying. Unfortunately, our authorized translation is really not good at this point. It puts it the wrong way around. It says that which is good to the use of edifying. But what it really means is this. That which is good for the edification of the need. Now, some of you have got the re revised versions in front of you there, and you find there it's this. Such as is good for edifying as the need may be. I believe that here the revised standard version is even better. 
but only such, he says, as is good for edifying, as fits the occasion. That's it. Only such as is good for edifying, as fits the occasion. Not the edification of the need. No, but that which is good for the edification of the need. That's it. Well, now, what does all this mean? It seems to me that here we can divide it like this quite simply. What are the principles that are to govern my talk and conversation with others? Well, first of all, look at the general principles. The first is, obviously, that our conversation must always be controlled, must always be under our control. You know, we all, in an unregenerate state, and alas, we lapse into it sometimes, even as Christians, we've all been guilty of becoming drunk in conversation. Have you watched it? Try the experiment. Just listen and watch, the pe- watch people in conversation. If you're ever at a conference especially, just listen now and again, and you'll find the conversation starts rather quietly, the pitch rises, in the end, they're shouting. There's a clamor. It's sheer intoxication. It's drunkenness. They've become drunk on conversation. All controls have gone. One says a thing, another wants to cap it, and another wants to be yet more daring, and control has entirely gone. A Christian should never be out of control. Never. And especially in this matter of conversation. We must never become so excited that we are really not responsible for what we are saying. There must always be thought behind Christian speech and conversation. Why? Well, because, as I said at the beginning, our speech and conversation is an expression of our total personality. And the very thing that differentiates the Christian from the non-Christian is just this very thing, no longer excess. But there is control, discipline, order. The chaos has gone. The God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness at the creation has shined in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's brought order and there is control and everything is in position. So that I say there is no longer any excess. It's a controlled conversation. And of course it is a conversation that is controlled by the truth which we believe. (laughs) <laughs> the second obvious thing about it is this, that it's no longer selfish or self-centered. There's no need to stop with that, is there? But there is need to stop with it, alas, in practice. The Christian should never set out just to be admired or to be important or to be thought wonderful in conversation. Never. That's the, that's the old put it off. Stop it, says Paul. Have nothing to do with it. You've been brought out of it. Never yourself for an opportunity for self-display. Well, what then? Well, here's his great controlling principle. Oh, the thing that should characterize the speech of the Christian is a concern for other people. That's, he's, been, he's been saying that in every one of these uh, particular injunctions... All along, you see, he said, stop lying. Let every man speak truth with his neighbor for the good of the neighbor. 
Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't go to sleep thinking that about your neighbor. Let him that stole steal no more, but let him rather labor, working with his hands that which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. It's always the neighbor. And it's still the neighbor in this matter of speech and talk and conversation. You're not just to display yourself. Now wait a moment, control yourself. What about these other people? You see, you start by thinking about them. And you have them all along in the center of the picture. The Christian is a man who all along doesn't merely think of his own things, but also the things of another. He is like we saw last Sunday morning, the Lord himself, and this is the mind that must be in us. He didn't consider himself, he thought of others. And therefore he humbled himself. For the sake of others. For our sakes. Well now that's to be the governing factor in our speech and conversation. There are the general principles. What are the particular principles? Well here is the first. Our conversation must be good. Not corrupt. That which is good. And to good he adds edifying. There must be some purpose in it. There must be some point in it. There must be some value in it. We don't just chatter away the time and talk about nothing. Oh, the hours we've all wasted in life in sure idle talk and chatter and gossip and unworthiness. The Christian mustn't do that. As I'm going to show him, needn't always of necessity be talking religion. But whenever he speaks it, there must always be some point and some value in it. It must always be good. It must always be clean. It must always, in some sense or another, be edifying. So that people say at the end, well, now it was a good thing to have spent some time with that man or with that woman. I'm somewhat better for having done so. I'm almost tempted to put it like this, that one of the first differences between pagan and Christian conversation is that Christian conversation is always intelligent, and the other isn't. But we don't stop at that. It's always got to be good and edifying, yes, but that is this question of the need. The edification of the need. Or, as that Revised Standard Version puts it, as fits the occasion. Or, as the need may be. Now, this is particularly important, I think. And I think that it's just here that some of us who are Christian, and perhaps particularly evangelicals, so frequently fall into error and into a snare. Here I am in conversation with another or with a number of other people. Well, I mustn't do certain things, and I must consider these others, and my speech must be good and edifying. Yes, but go further, says the apostle, as fits the occasion. Here's the thing, here's the difficult thing, but it's a very vital one. What does he mean by as fits the occasion? Oh, it's just this that I must always speak in this way. I must consider the people to whom I'm speaking, and I must make an assessment of them, and my speech and conversation must be appropriate for them. 
Now, I find so many Christian people don't do that. Uh, what they do is they deliver a sermon. They address this individual as if he or she were a public meeting. They sermonize. They give a little address or a sermonette. Uh, they make very good statements about the gospel and the way of salvation. But it sometimes is not at all appropriate and doesn't fit the occasion at all. Now, why do they do that? Well, it's because they're thinking about themselves only. They're not estimating the other. They say, now I'm a Christian and I must always have good and godly conversation. And therefore, I must always be giving my testimony or uh, preaching the gospel or, or getting in a little word somewhere or other. No, no, says the apostle. That's a wrong approach. If you approach it like that, you're more concerned about yourself and doing your duty then you are about really manifesting the Christian attitude in this matter. The Christian's word of edification should always be to fit the occasion. So you don't repeat phrases in parrot fashion and feel you've done well and done your duty. No, no. You say, now what is the exact position of this person or what is the exact position of these people? My business is to speak to them in such a way that I'll help them just where they are, exactly where they are. Cast not your pearls before swine, says our Lord. Quite right. Don't hurl chunks, as it were, of good red meat at a babe who can only take milk. These are the scriptural terms, aren't they? I couldn't speak unto you, says the apostle to the Corinthians, as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, as unto babes. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. Why? Well, you were not yet able to bear it. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews bemoans the same fact. He says, I want to go on to perfection, but I can't. You keep me back all along at the first principles of the gospel of Christ. Yes, but what wise teachers these men were recognizing that the people were not yet in a fit condition to take the more advanced teaching. They gave them the teaching that was appropriate to their, to their condition, as fits the occasion. Now, Christian people, this is the way that you and I have got to speak. We don't just talk and talk and talk. No, no. We don't just merely make our statement. No, we have to go beyond that. We have to understand these others. And we should be so anxious to help them that we take time, we meditate, we think, we feel our way, we see the position, and then we apply the necessary and the appropriate word. It demands great wisdom, of course. It demands great understanding. It demands great patience. Don't be unfair to people. Don't expect them to be what they're not. Your business and mine is to take people as they are and try and bring them from them. So let us be careful, I say, that always our word, our good word of edification, shall always fit the occasion and be appropriate for the particular circumstances. And that brings me to the third and the last general matter, which is this. The object of it all, I needn't keep you, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. That's the reason. That it may impart grace unto them in some shape or form. Never forgets is the apostle in effect. 
that that man or that woman or that company of people to whom you are speaking never forget that they're immortal souls. That their life doesn't end in this world, they go on to eternity. Never forget it. And you see, if we remember that, it'll govern and control our whole conversation, won't it? Minister grace to them. Some of them may even be unconverted. Well, let there be something at any rate about you and your whole manner of speaking and what you say that may arrest them, call attention to the truth. Don't preach, but let your conversation in general be such that some aspect of grace becomes evident to them. And if they are children of God, well, build them up. Improve their stock. As that hymn of Horatius Bonner put it just now, help them to build up their little stock of grace and of knowledge and of understanding. They are exhorted as you are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. We'll let contact with you help that process. And let your conversation with them be conducive to them. I can sum it all up and give it to you all in a way that I trust we shall ever remember. What the Apostle is really doing here is to ask us to behave like our Lord himself. How did he behave? Well, let me give you this description of him, written by the prophet Isaiah in one of his great messianic passages. He looks forward and he sees him. And here he tells us the Messiah is speaking. And this is what he says. The Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. That's it. The tongue of the learned, that I may know how to speak a word in season. To him that is weary. My dear Christian people. There are weary people round and about us. Weary of sin. Weary in sin. Weary of life. There are Christian people around us. Carrying burdens. Carrying loads. Suffering illness and sickness. Disappointment. Treachery of friends. Some fond hopes suddenly gone, dashed and vanished illusions. There are men and women round and about us who are weary. And as we meet them and speak to them, let's forget ourselves. Let's not regard the meeting as an occasion when we can display how wonderful we are. No, no. Let us pray that we may have this tongue of the learned that we may be enabled to speak a word in season to some poor, weary soul. Our Lord came from heaven to do that. And of him it was written and he verified it in his life. The bruised reed he will not break and the smoking flax he will not quench. 
That's the way. So that as we travel through this journey of life, we help men and women by a word, a word of encouragement, a word of cheer, perhaps a word of rebuke, but a word that will remind them that they're under God. And that if they're in Christ, they're precious to him. Go out, therefore, I say, and succor the weary. Help the infirm. Let us indeed help one another in the whole of our life and conversation, but above all, in our speech. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. No, no. But that which is good and for the edification of the use, the improvement of the need, that which fits the occasion. That we may ever administer grace to the hearer. Thank God for such a life as this Christian life in which everything is changed and all we are and do and say is so different from that old, unregenerate life. Blessed be the name of God, who hath had mercy upon us, and sent his Son, not only to die for us and deliver us from hell and its corruption, but who has given us this new nature, and who has fashioned anew our lives after his own image. The closing hymn is hymn number 552, 552. Lord, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of thy tone. 552.
unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall see him face to face. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.